This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. It's probably uh, at least eight drops of love, if for no other reason that the shares of Dropbox DBX, they are higher right now by more than $8 a share after going public at $21 a share. Here to help us understand this IPO is our own expert when it comes to all things related to initial public offerings and technology mergers and acquisitions. And we're lucky enough to have her here in our 1130 studios, Alex Barinka of Bloomberg News. And you can follow Alex on on Twitter at Alex Barinka. All right, Alex Barinka, tell us about Dropbox and uh, did they really leave any money on the table? So that's the one thing. It seemed like they wanted to um, price this somewhat conservatively. So this priced a dollar above the eighteen to twenty dollar a share marketed range. That range had been increased once in the course of the roadshow. It was the only company in the last three years that raised more than five hundred million dollars in its IPO that's actually increased the range. So it was a rarity. They maybe came out. Uh, not as hot as they wanted to, and now seeing the stock up uh, 39% today. I can tell you the company is not upset about it. If my time spent at the NASDAQ today is uh, is any read-in through that, you there was lots of cheering, lots of confetti, lots of excitement uh, for this listing 10 years in to this company, uh, Dropbox. And uh, Drew uh, Houston. Houston. What is the one of the co-founders, right, along yes. with uh, Arash uh, Ferdowski? Tell us about uh, both of these gentlemen. So these two started the file sharing company back in 2007. Sequoia was one of the early investors who got in to help them. Uh, they really have built this out uh, as the first mover in this kind of file storage market to now pushing further into selling into businesses and collaboration tools. And you know this company, which made 1.1 billion dollars in revenue last year makes 90% of the money made, it comes from self-service sign-on. So instead of having a sales force like a typical enterprise technology firm, they actually uh, have you sign up online. Uh, I talked to CEO Drew Houston earlier today at the NASDAQ about their sales strategy. Take a listen. So that means all the hundreds of millions of people using Dropbox out there bring it into their companies. And we find that often before we make a sale or before we talk to IT, there are hundreds, sometimes thousands of people actively using Dropbox um, and, and often paying for Dropbox. So we're able to take advantage of that scale that came from our consumer roots and our freemium model to drive massive adoption in businesses. So that's how they've kind of made their money to this to this moment. But the thing I will uh, say investors have been focused on is while they have 11 million paying users, they have 500 million registered users, only 2.2% of them actually pay. I went on to ask Drew, um, what, what, where would you be happy? He said, obviously, we would always be happy with more. He demurred a little and wouldn't give me an exact number. But it does seem like that is their growth strategy right now. Get more registered users to actually uh, sign on for the 
paid tools, the tools that they have to open their pocketbooks for. Am, am I correct in thinking that commodity is uh, storage rather is supposed to be a commodity business? It is, and that's why they would press to say that they do more than just storage. So they do store things in the cloud. They've built out their own infrastructure to help do that. But they're now pushing additional tools like uh, Dropbox Paper, which is a collaboration tool. It allows you to access all of those files. You might actually store and do more on top of it. So the, the kind of what's next that IPO investors get really hungry for, what is the value add on top of the initial product that you rolled out that will really make you a business and not just a one product company. And that seems to be uh, what they're pushing right now is into collaboration. Uh, can I just ask you, I know I'm throwing this at you on, without warning, but um, the acquisition of MuleSoft by Salesforce.com comes in the same week, right? It does. So there's a lot of money that's chasing a lot of technology. There is. And MuleSoft was interesting because that's a company that listed just a year ago at yes. around a $3 billion valuation, if memory serves correct. They sold to Salesforce at $6.5 billion. So as I've been boots on the ground in Silicon Valley, everyone just keeps telling me it's going to be busier. And this week seems like a good indicator. Just before I came on here with you, Pim, um, Dell's Pivotal Software, it's a company owned by Dell, uh, actually filed their S1 to go public. We had written before, according to people familiar with the matter, that they are uh, looking at to list this company at a 5 to $7 billion valuation. So Dropbox, Pivotal, Dell apparently considering their own IPO, according to our sources. Spotify, you have companies getting out the door. You have Salesforce and MuleSoft transacting. So there is a lot of money sloshing around right now uh, in the tech world, for sure. All right. And I just want to offer up your email. Email because if uh, anyone doesn't know about your IPO hot sheet, they That's should. Right. Uh, a 2 at Bloomberg.net. And uh, as you have just moved to San Francisco, I would imagine also uh, you want to connect with as many people out there that have some uh, experience and information and details about how the tech business really works. I do. The movers and shakers in where the money slosh around in tech is where I focus. And again, I send out a weekly hot sheet on the top news in U.S. IPOs and tech M&A uh, typically every Monday, but I'll be sure to get that in your inbox weekly. Just shoot me an email, and I'll add you to my list. Yes, abarinka2 at bloomberg.net. Uh, and, and just finally, um, things more expensive in San Francisco than they are on the East Coast? Uh, rentings, renting housing, about the same. Food is actually a little cheaper. So, uh -huh. you know, we'll see. Maybe the myth is being debunked about SF being uh, more expensive than New York. We'll be out there for lunch. Thanks very much. Alex Barinka, our deals reporter for U.S. Initial Public Offerings and Technology Mergers and Acquisitions. She'll be in San Francisco. Follow her on Twitter at Alex Barinka and send her an email at abarinka2 at Bloomberg.net. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. Blockbuster video waste management, the Miami Dolphins, the Florida Panthers, and, of course, the Florida Marlins of Major League Baseball. They all are part of the life of Wayne Hazinga. And here to help us understand the effect of this gentleman and his accomplishments is a fellow gentleman from Fort Lauderdale, but also a guest on the frequent guest on the program. Mark Grant is the chief global strategist at B. Riley FBR. Mark Grant, thanks very much for being with us. We'll get to details on markets in just a moment. But really, I wonder if you could just share some of your personal thoughts and reminiscences reminiscences about uh, Mr. Hazinga and uh, what he really meant for the business and, and the life of people in Florida. Certainly, Pim. Um, Wayne, for many years, lived right across the canal from me. I knew he and his wife, Marty, quite well. Marty was a 
fabulous person, and she left us about a year ago. Uh, Wayne uh, experienced some uh, Alzheimer's in his later life. He uh, he and I ran into each other frequently. Not only were his business accomplishments uh, almost unparalleled, he was a an American uh, idol, if you will, in my opinion. I mean, he started his life driving a garbage truck and uh, worked his way up and rolled up uh, the industry and, uh, as you mentioned, the, some of the companies uh, that he he uh, ha- helped found. He was an entrepreneur of unbelievable stature, I think. Uh, the only guy that uh, started and uh, fostered three Fortune 500 companies. One of my favorite stories about Wayne is uh, comes from the former chairman of the uh, Republic Services, another company, waste company that Wayne was involved in, and he uh, Wayne owned a golf course pim up in uh, by Stewart, the Floridian. And every year he invited people to join for or to be members for one year. And so one day Ray told me that he asked Wayne, he said, well, what would cause you not to invite somebody back? And Wayne's response was there are two reasons. One would be if the person didn't use the golf course enough. And the second reason would be if he mistreated the staff. And that was the kind of person, human being, that Wayne Heisinger was. He was never condescending. He was always gracious and lovely and treated everybody with the respect that every human being deserves. And over my lifetime, my 44 years almost now on Wall Street, I've seen a number of guys make a lot of money, Pim, but um, they made it in a way that it affected them and what kind of person they were. And Wayne was a genuine person, a lovely human being, and a stand-up guy all the years that I knew him. And it was with great sadness that I heard about his passing this morning. Uh, Mark, just uh, uh, one question about him, and and this had to do with his sports teams, because uh, he took a lot of heat at the time for naming uh, the teams uh, after the state of Florida rather than the, the, the city of Miami. And uh, he said that that was really because he wanted to expand the team's fan base. He wanted to expand people's interest. Uh, Do you think that that was something that can be translated to to today's way of doing business? Now you don't think anything of it, but at the time that was a a bit controversial. Well, Wayne lived, of course, as I just said, in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, southern Florida is made up of three primary regions, which are Miami, Fort Lauderdale, uh, Boca Raton and Palm Beach, and I think Wayne was uh, a forerunner, if you will, uh, in using very good common sense that he was trying to attract not just the Miami crowd but the whole crowd in South Florida. And uh, of course, he was a uh, certainly one of the wealthiest people in South Florida, and and maybe the most well-known person in South Florida, and. Uh, uh, I think he was just out in front of his time and coming up with that idea. What What do you think he would make uh, make about today's uh, markets and and things such as uh, trade wars for a person that was looking to be inclusive and and gather as many people as possible to his uh, his ventures? You know, I don't know for sure, Pim, but I would think that he he wouldn't think it was a very smart idea. I think he would think that uh, cooperation and working with uh, people or working with companies or working with countries in the case of China would be a much better concept than uh, 
President Trump, who kind of every time he turns around as he's using the Art of the Deal playbook, his book, as uh, kind of threatening people as a negotiating uh, tactic. And uh, that was certainly not the way uh, Wayne Heisinger operated his businesses as far as I know it. I want to thank you very much, uh, Mark Grant, uh, joining us, giving us some uh, personal reminiscence of Wayne Hazinga, who uh, died uh, yesterday evening. Uh, Mr. Hazinga, of course, the uh, owner and uh, creator of such companies as Waste Management and Blockbuster, uh, but also uh, owner of the Miami Dolphins, the Florida Panthers, and the uh, Florida Marlins of Major League Baseball. So let's get to the point. Let's roll. Another joyless head on down the road There's somewhere well, let's head on down the road and understand a little bit more about medical and recreational marijuana. My guest is Dr. Ian Lustbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Medical School. And uh, I want to thank you very much for coming into the studio. Dr. Lustbader, let's just first sort of uh, outline marijuana use uh, is legal for medical uh, conditions in 29 states as well as the District of Columbia, Guam, and Puerto Rico. It's legal for recreational use in nine states. That includes Alaska, California, Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, Nevada, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington. What is the stance of the medical community as regards the use of cannabis? Great question. There's no uh, first. Thank you for uh, having me on. Always a pleasure to be here. Uh, I also do want to mention that March is Colorectal Cancer Screening Awareness Month. So uh, for those between uh, 50 and 75, make sure you speak to your doctor about colon cancer screening, colonoscopy. We have some other approaches as well, so keep that in mind. Uh, it's the second leading cause of death, uh, of cancer death in the United States. Um, so marijuana is definitely more frequent. Uh, we see it becoming legalized in, uh, or approved in more states as well as for medical use. Uh, the data is uh, incomplete. Uh, certainly uh, for a number of patients with cancer, HIV, uh, a number of medical conditions, chronic pain, uh, we find that it can provide an alternative. Uh, there are obviously a number of traditional medications, uh, narcotics and uh, uh, appetite stimulants that can be used. But uh, medical marijuana does seem to have a niche in patients who uh, really have not responded to that uh, or have ongoing pain, anxiety. Every state really has different criteria, and uh, practitioners, doctors have to pass a course in most states, certainly in New York State, in order to prescribe medical marijuana. Do you believe that the medical community, doctors in particular, are behind the curve when it comes to being involved in this debate and that typically the response is, as you say, there's not enough data, so we're not going to come out on this one way or the other. We know that it is illegal in certain states or in the states that it is legal for either recreational medical purposes, that it comes with so many restrictions and so many unknowns, and still the federal overview is the illegality of the drug, that the medical community is missing a big opportunity here? Uh, I, you know, I think we're, we're uh, open to uh, all, all the information. I don't think there's a particular ax to grind. We do know that there are cautions, certainly for recreational marijuana, in developing brains and teenagers. Uh, there are a number of studies that really do show some adverse effects, not to mention the potential for addiction. Perhaps as many as 10% of uh, kids or people who start marijuana can 
uh, it becomes a gateway drug to more uh, uh, sinister uh, drugs. But in terms of uh, patients who have failed traditional medications, if you've got cancer, inflammatory bowel disease, chronic pain, a variety of approved uses, uh, and those are expanding, by the way, uh, it does appear uh, in some patients to provide a benefit. Remember, pain, for example, is subjective. You can measure someone's blood pressure. You can measure someone's cholesterol. Pain is what they tell you. Yeah, but pain may be what they what they tell you, but pain has certainly been a focus of prescription when it comes to opioids by doctors. So, I mean, it's not as if it just sounds as if there's slightly a different. There's a double standard here. On the one hand, because of the ambiguity that surrounds the use of cannabis, uh, that ambiguity is being used because the medical community, for whatever reason, wants to be extremely conservative about their participation in what many describe as a, a, a breakthrough. Because, I mean, there are studies, for example, in Israel that dem have demonstrated that the use of cannabis has been very effective uh, in treating uh, children with cerebral palsy, yes, for example. cerebral palsy, epilepsy. There's no question that as uh, cannabis is used more widely, uh, it may have more wide uh, indications. Um, you have to remember it, there are no studies that show it changes the course of a disease. In other words, it doesn't seem to cure anything. It is a treatment, uh, and in some ways a helpful treatment, certainly for nausea, appetite, anxiety, pain, uh, that can accompany a whole variety of conditions from HIV and wasting and cancer uh, to neurologic problems as well. Well, do you think, for example, that the medical community, specifically doctors, do they ever discuss the notion of why isn't cannabis treated in the same way that tobacco has traditionally been treated? And I mean, I think it's worth noting that at one time, doctors were the gateway prescribers for cigarettes. This that is, is what you were, you, you would send cartons of cigarettes to physicians in the hope that the patient population would then adopt that, those habits. So I think the mistakes made in the 30s and 40s when, when cigarettes were thought to be good for you, uh, like snake oil and, and other things at different times, I think physicians really want the data. And you're right. I think they're circumspect about it. New York State certainly has put another barrier besides having your DEA license and besides having your medical license, you need to take a course and pass it. You know, you need to understand the parameters that it's legal for. But those practitioners who do prescribe it do see some success in, in a number of patients and uh, uh, they're aware of p abuse potential. I think we all have to be aware of that as well. But you're right that narcotics that have been widely used also have abuse potential. Just uh, quickly, just to give you 10 seconds, this is colorectal Cancer. cancer Screening Awareness Month. See your doctor about colon cancer screening. Very important. Between 50 and 75 years of age. Thank, Thank you very you. much for being with us. Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Medical Center.
Well, that very fine house may be financed without ever having to have a face-to-face meeting with a mortgage broker or banker. The chief executive of the next company, Lenda, they have lent about $200 million to over 750 borrowers, and they have big plans. Jason Vandenbrand is the founder and the chief executive of Lenda. They are based in San Francisco, and they can be followed on Twitter at Lenda, L-E-N-D-A. Jason, tell us how you first encountered the mortgage industry. Uh, I've been in the mortgage industry now for 14 years. Uh, so I started in 2004 and uh, have now worked with several thousand homeowners through their purchase and refinance transactions. Uh, Lenda is an online home lender. Uh, we make the home loan experience honest, fast, and completely online. And we started this business in California in 2014 and have since expanded into 12 states, which now represents 65% of the mortgage market. And by the end of this year, Three out of four Americans will be able to use Lenda to buy or refinance their homes. Now, your company uses what is described as a predictive algorithm rather than a human loan officer, for example. Can you explain what goes into making this predictive algorithm? Yeah. uh, Basically, if you're a customer today, uh, you are going to start the process online to find, shop, compare who you're going to work with for your home finance needs. And what's happening behind the scenes is your information is being collected by loan officers and processors, which ultimately is going to lead to an underwriter who's going to make the final decision. Now, an underwriter is going to look at approximately 1,200 pages of underwriting guidelines that is set forth by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, who all of your listeners probably know well. Uh, But instead of uh, actually paying loan officers and processors to gather that information, Lendis Technology allows Uh, your data to be underwritten as you're entering it online so that by the time it hits an underwriter for the final decision, you know that your loan is going to be approved and continue on to be funded. Can you offer a personal story? I know that you've written about it in the past that sort of exemplifies how you came to put these different pieces together to put together Lenda. Well, I had an interesting position here because of my experience in, in mortgage for 14 years and, and also being a loan originator uh, and working with thousands of customers. You know, ultimately, the lender was built because I, uh, I listened. I, I, you know, I, if you listen to customers long enough uh, and you hear the same pain points like, hey, look, I went online and now I'm being telemarketed to death. I'm tired of the paperwork. I don't understand where my loan is at in the process. Am I approved? Am I not approved? Can someone just call me back? And not to mention that it takes about two months to close a home loan today. Uh, And then, you know, again, being a manager and an owner of businesses in the past and hearing the complaints and the problems of loan officers and processors and underwriters and realizing pretty quickly that, you know, the only solution for this is to not only build a front-end solution for consumers to answer those questions and solve for those pain points, but also reimagining the mortgage bank itself, uh, and we've built that from the ground up using our modern technology. Now, I thought you were going to tell us the story about Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving? You flew back east to see your father. Oh, you've heard this story. Okay. Yeah, so when it, it's interesting. That was in 2012. I was flying back to see my father. I wasn't sure if I was going to get this off the ground. Well, my dad is a man that sat down and balanced his checkbook every night at the kitchen table, uh, wrote all of his bills in the mail, uh, and refused to do anything online, as a matter of fact. And so I walked in the door, 
hey, Pop, I'm home. Great to see you again. And there he is sitting in the Lazy Boy on an iPad and, and extolling the virtues of Amazon Prime to his son from San Francisco. And so I thought that that was the light bulb moment where here's, you know, at the time, a, a mid-50s, late-50s man uh, who no one would have considered at that point as a demographic and a customer who would shop online, putting their credit card information online, and he's telling his son from San Francisco about this. And so I quickly accelerated, went into doing additional market research to realize that who I thought was the target demographic for this, which you know at the time I thought was 30-year-olds, actually it turns out it was the late 40s, early 50s uh, of folks that would actually go and transact online without the typical telephone intermediation. Uh, the reason I ask you to tell that story is because the alternative, of course, is a more traditional route, which is that you go to a bank. Now, you mm -hmm. have uh, assembled some investors that include Credit Ease, FinTech Investment Fund, uh, Rubicon Venture Capital, and so on. I note that there are no banks that are invested with you. Would you rather continue as an independent company than get swallowed up by a banking organization? Our preference is to, is to stay the course and continue to help customers as we have been. Uh, we've elected not to work with the traditional banks to build the business at this point. Uh, what we are seeing in the market, which is interesting and part of our strategy, is a lot of traditional banks are, I think, at this point, and they'd recognize and say the same woefully behind the times as it, as it, as it pertains to a digital mortgage experience for their customers. So in the future, as Lenda continues to grow and bring in outside capital to build this business, there might be a, a partnership that could come into play where, uh, you know, Capital One Finance, as example, just shut down their mortgage arm, uh, and they're going to want to uh, have a place to send their customers through an online experience like Lenda. Thanks very much for being with us and explaining this business model. Jason Vandenbrand is the founder and the chief executive of Lenda. They are based in San Francisco. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, driving to the close on Wall Street with the S&P 500 right now down more than 51 points, trading at 25.91. That's a drop of nearly 2%. Here to help us understand what is going on is Brent Schutte. He is the chief investment strategist for Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management based in Milwaukee. Brent, a pleasure to have you with us. So what do you say to a client that calls you at the close today and asks why? Well, I mean, I think that the big overriding factor in today's market is still the Trump tariffs and what the effect of those will be. Um, and so I, I do believe a lot of the selling has to do with that. I've heard people talk about the Fed, but I don't buy that for a second. Um, Why I, not? Uh, because I think the Fed is still very easy. I mean, monetary policy is still extremely accommodative. Real rates on some measures are still negative. Um, and the Fed has told you over and over that they're going to let the economy run hot. And I still believe that that is the case and that they believe that that is a better outcome than tightening too fast and actually causing the economy to roll over. And so right now, if you look at the economy, it's still on strong footing, even with the, the threats that we have out there from the Trump tariffs. Okay, but let me just push back a second sure. here. If you believe that the economy is going to run hot, why would you have a 10-year at 2.8%? 
because it's been distorted by central banks around the globe and because many investors don't believe that the economy is going to run hot. And so if you look at the 10-year Treasury, I mean, I don't think people realize how much central banks around the globe have bought longer-duration bonds with the goal of pushing rates lower. And just to give you an example, in the Eurozone, which is one of the bigger bond markets besides the U.S., I believe over the past few years, since 2015, Eurozone, or the ECB, has bought about $1.9 trillion worth of government debt. Net new issuance in the Eurozone from all those governments has been about $400 billion. And in my world, supply and demand tends to win. And so the, 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 the demand is high and the supply is low. And so I think it's, that's had a, a, a you know, pushback effect on U.S. rates. And so I, I do believe that's one of the fears that I have is that there is some normalization that has to occur in the bond market. And as long as that happens gradually, we're okay. If it happens faster, then we could have some more hiccups like we have over the, you know, I guess back in January before kind of we were worried about the Trump tariffs. Okay. So if you've got this hiccup right now with the S&P 500 down more than 2%, it's lower by more than 56 points right now, mm -hmm. 2586. When do you deploy capital to start buying stocks if, if you do? So, so we are invested, and our clients are invested and have been over um, weight in equities for quite some time. The asset class that we've warmed to more recently, though, is commodities. Um, and so if I worry that the end of this cycle is, happens when three things occur, which is what every cycle in the past 30 or 40 years have happened, one, the U.S. economy runs out of slack. So think lower unemployment. Two, that shows up in rising inflation. And then three, that causes the Fed to hike rates aggressively, at least in the past, because the Fed believes that if they cut off the boom or moderate it, the bust won't be so big. And so I do believe inflation is the marker that kind of gets us to the end, but I think the Fed wants us to play extra innings here. But in order to start hedging that, we have added commodities to our portfolios because they have a positive correlation with inflation, whereas stocks and bonds, as we have seen right now, or at least over the, in January when we had that first sell-off, they, they kind of are moving together because stocks traded high valuations because bond trades at low yields. And so if I have to normalize the bond market, I have to normalize the stock market. So what kind of commodity investments are you talking about? Stocks, for example, Freeport McMoran, the shares there are perhaps on sale. They're down more than 10% over the last month. No, I, I want the good old uh, uh, hardcore commodities, not the equities. And so for the most part, um, we would have exposure to a broad basket of commodities. Uh, and that would be how we would get the exposure. So it's not gold versus um, agriculture. We tend to take it all. Okay, and what does that use in uh, exchange-traded funds, for example? Um, in some of our portfolios, it may be exchange-traded funds or it may be actively managed mutual funds that um, similarly um, give us that exposure. I see. Okay, and uh, if you do see this acceleration in inflation, does the old adage that inflation is good for stocks, does that still hold true? I think eventually. Um, I think you'd have to reprice in the beginning because the stock market is rationally expensive. So, you know, people say that the, the average P.E. is 16.6 times, and I say an average is an average. And I dare you to show up to Milwaukee, for example, um, dressed for the average temperature of 55 degrees, which is what it is over 12 months um, in, Jan in January. Uh, and so um, stocks traded high P.E.s when rates are low and vice versa. And so in the beginning, I do believe there would be some sort of a stock sell-off, kind of like we had in January, which I believe that was caused by people realizing inflation wasn't a relic of the past. Um, eventually, stocks would um, probably rally just because companies would attempt to pass that on, and I do believe they would be able to. Do you think that this inflation scenario also applies to, let's say, the energy complex? We've got crude oil now up about 2.5% on the day. Well, sure. I mean, I mean, a lot of those markets have been out of favor for four or five years. I mean, most commodities 
um, have been um, in, a, in a downward spiral. And certainly, supply has been cut in most of those markets, and that um, ultimately leads to eventually rising prices. And so, you know, I think most commodity markets are attractive. And as I mentioned before, it's a diversification tool in our portfolios. If it doesn't work, I suppose the rest of our portfolio, stocks and bonds, will be just fine, because I do believe the economy will continue to move. Um, and if it works, it just hudges a little bit. Good stuff. Thanks very much, uh, Brent Schutte. He is Chief Investment Strategist for Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management. They are based in Milwaukee. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 